Welcome to the West Side Audio Message Podcast. We hope you enjoy today's message. And if you're looking for more ways to connect with West Side Assembly of God, feel free to check us out at www.westsideag.org. You'll find all the information about our service times, upcoming events, and opportunities for you to plug in and get connected with West Side Assembly of God. Additionally, you'll find a complete online archive of all of the previous and current messages absolutely free of charge. We hope you are encouraged by this week's message, and thanks again for downloading the West Side Audio Message Podcast. In the Corinthian church, they had, obviously, a lot of internal problems. And some of those problems and difficulties bled over into the observance of the Lord's Supper. They had what they had established, uh, they called a love feast. And problems began to develop about this. So Paul, in writing this letter to them, addressed those problems and gave them some expectations and some remedies for those things. We don't necessarily have the same problems that the Corinthians had regarding the communion, the Lord's Supper, but there's a few things about this that we would benefit if we observe and we think about it, we make some personal application. So this will be a beneficial portion of Scripture for us to study today. Now, the infant church wasted no time in making fellowship dinners, that would be our modern-day term, a regular part of their function because banquets were certainly a normal part of their culture in those days, whether it would be the pagan culture or the Jewish culture or the newborn Christian culture. Getting together and eating was a very popular thing for these people to do. They didn't have the other variety of forms of entertainment that we have today that compete with that. So that was one of the major ways that people entertained themselves and fellowshiped was in banquets. The church did not have a centralized building like we have. At first, the Christians just borrowed the synagogues or tried to do their Christian worship within a synagogue, and it collided, it clashed horribly with the Jewish faith because the revelation of the new Christian movement was in uh, contradiction to many of the things of the Jewish faith, so they were kicked out of the synagogues. They began to meet in the homes. And in that culture, as well as in our culture, some had larger homes, some just barely had homes large enough for a place to sleep and a small place for a kitchen if they didn't do their cooking outside. So the church, as we had mentioned at the beginning of this series, was really every person who was associated with a mini-congregation located in some house somewhere. So it wasn't just one single house that housed all of the Corinthian Christians. It was all the Corinthian Christians that met in various places, the original small groups, if you would. So those who had the larger houses had the accommodations to be able to handle 25, 30, maybe, maybe 40 people. And if they needed to, they could perhaps move into a large atrium or move into a courtyard, and they could host these things. The people in smaller houses could not host uh, these kind of banquets. So 
whenever they would come to one of these love feasts, agape feasts, Christian banquets, they were walking into another social structure. The poor people were now mingling with the more well-to-do people on their turf. And I think we can all imagine how that may bring some tension, that, that may cause a little bit of uneasiness. These feasts had good beginnings. It, it, was, it was not only a way of perpetuating fellowship that was very important in this culture and doing it within the Christian context instead of within the Jewish context instead of within the pagan context. Well, let's do it within the, the Christian context. But it was also a way of the church being benevolent. And let's make sure that the poor are taken care of, the needy are taken care of. Everybody was welcome to bring potluck, if you let me use that term. They could bring some side dish or something to add to it, and everybody could participate. And as this feast continued to develop, it strayed away from its original purpose. Now, I have to remind you that when Jesus set that first example of what we call the Lord's Supper, the Last Supper, he was participating in a Passover feast. He used the occasion of the Passover feast, which would have been a, a complete feast, in order to, at that point where they would typically break that single loaf of bread and then pass it around, that would be at the beginning of the feast, the breaking of bread. There would be several cups of wine, three or four cups of wine, uh, Traditionally and ritualistically, they would drink throughout the feast at, at different intervals. And the third of four cups of wine would be served towards the last. And that's the cup that Jesus took and made the announcement that this cup is the New Testament in my blood. Drink ye all of it. And so in breaking the bread, he said, this is my body which is broken for you. The disciples were not putting the whole picture together. They still did not understand this man was going to die within hours. He had been telling them, he had been leading them up to this, but it still wasn't all coming together. It was beyond their ability to imagine he is here making his final statement. But he's telling them this, this bread is, as I break it, just think of my broken body. This cup as you drink it, think of the blood I shed. And they just kind of packed that away in the back of their brain, wondering what does this mean, but it soon would explain itself fully to them. And then he reminded them, he said, as oft as you do this, do in remembrance of me. So when the young church put all that information together and realized what Jesus was doing as he was demonstrated demonstrating by the broken loaf and by the, the cup the symbols of his sacrifice. Then they said, well, he said, as oft as we do this, remember me. So when they would have their feast, what they were supposed to do is we come to the part of the breaking the bread, they would say, now let's not forget that our Lord and Savior did this, and he told us as often as we break this bread, we ought not to forget 
the sacrifice that he gave for us. So let's all just pause and remember that for a minute. Then they'd break the bread and they'd distribute it and the feast would go on. Then toward the end of the feast, someone would stand up and say, and he told us as often as we drank of this cup, we should not forget the blood that he shed for us. And it would be a very solemn moment remembering that sacrifice that Jesus had given. Now, that was a supper. We had communion last Sunday. We do it on the first Sunday of the month. The word supper for us is a misnomer. That little piece of bread and that little cup of juice is not supper to me. We've drifted away from what the early church did in bringing these feasts together. Now, one thing, the breaking of bread in the early church and in that culture, not just in the church, but in that entire culture, was a very highly personal symbol of close fellowship. If you would break bread with somebody, you welcomed them into your inner circle. And the sharing of the cup was equally significant of unity. And we, in what we have done, have somewhat lost that unity, that that symbol, that symbolism of unity, because we have now taken the bread and broken it into little morsels and put it in separate cups. And we've taken the juice and separated it into separate cups. So one thing we have done by way of our tradition is we have taken away what that culture recognized as highly symbolic of all of us being together as one. Have any of you, you can give a quick show of hands, ever been in a church that have had a single loaf that was just broken and distributed? You've been there. They still do that in some churches. Have any of you been there when they've had the community cup that everybody drinks from the same cup? In our culture, that's a little uncomfortable for a lot of people. You know, the first time I was ever in a church, we were in a quartet that, that traveled and sang, and we were invited to sing at a church on a Sunday morning and that's what they did they had the single loaf and they had the uh, community cup and being new to this our little group of young men we were rather unfamiliar with how this works we were rather awkward in in how we partook Uh, the the bass singer was the first one to get the loaf of bread he broke the thing plumb in half and had a half a loaf now what do you do just pass them both along so we were a little embarrassed for him. And then we, we passed uh, the bread on, and then we took the cup, and we passed the cup on, and I passed the cup on to the next guy, and the next guy got choked on it and backwashed. My first concern was, I wonder if anybody's going to partake of the communion cup after this. And my second concern was, I wonder if they'll ever have us back to sing in their church again. We've messed the bread up, we've messed the cup up. Now, that's okay. I'm just telling you, in that culture, that really held a a high degree of of symbolism that as one loaf of bread, we are together, and we're going to to break this, as well as symbolizing the body of Jesus, dual dual symbolism. And and the cup as well, a singular cup, all of us partaking that, all of us a part of the body, as well as representing the body of Jesus Christ. That portion we've lost to a certain degree. I want to be very clear. I'm not recommending we go back to the single cup, nor to the single loaf. But my challenge would be this. Even though we don't have those elements to speak very strongly and symbolically and emphatically to us about our unity, 
we must be thinking in terms of unity when we do this. That's one thing we cannot lose, though we have lost the actual symbolism of it. We cannot lose the essence of unity when we're taking communion because one of the problems with the Corinthian church is they were taking communion, yet they didn't have good fellowship. They had broken fellowship. Now, it didn't take long for the church to break away from the love feast and begin to adopt a ceremony very similar to what we use today. As a matter of fact, within a hundred years, Justin Martyr wrote to the pagan emperor Antonius Pius to explain to him what the Christian rite of communion was all about. Because there were rumors in those days when Jesus had said, eat my body, drink my blood, and these people were gathering together, and they were eating bread, and they were drinking the wine, and they were talking about the death of Jesus. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood which was shed for you. And people who didn't appreciate Christianity were now passing rumors that Christianity was uh, partly involved in cannibalism. This is true. It wasn't true they were involved in cannibalism. It's true that the rumors were there. So... The, the officials are getting worried about what's this weird cult of people running around eating, repeatedly eating the body and drinking the blood of the man that they call their leader. So Justin Martyr writes to the emperor and explains to them what this is all about. And within that letter that he wrote, he describes the kind of ceremony, the kind of rite that we have today. We're just in a church service. They would distribute the bread. They would distribute the cup. And they would all partake of that. Now, I'm not advocating that we go back to the love feasts. I'm not advocating we have a full-blown banquet. I'm not advocating, advocating we try and duplicate anything that the early church was doing. This has evolved to a, a, a certain degree. But I do advocate that we reemphasize the unity of believers whenever we do this. Now, they had a good idea in the Corinthian church. And as we all know, good ideas do have the potential of going bad. They can go wrong. They can go awry, especially when you begin to leave God out of those things. No matter what we do, if God gets left out of it, it's over. It's going to go south real quick without God. So they call it the Lord's Supper. But in the Corinthian church... It really wasn't the Lord's Supper at all. Whose supper is this anyway? It became their supper. It was supposed to knit this young congregation together in common fellowship by obviously just the opportunity to get to dine together and by feeding the underprivileged. And somehow it evolved out of that. So when Paul focuses on the phrase, the Lord's Supper... He's emphasizing to them, it's his supper. He says in the scripture, in the following directives, I have no praise for you. For your meetings do more harm than good. You wonder why a church should continue. If the ultimate assessment is, you're doing more harm than you're good, doing good when you get together. That church is done. It's over. I hear when you come together as a church... There are divisions among you, and he says, to some extent, I believe it. In other words, he's saying, I, I can see why 
you've got so much division among you. He said, and then, then he says this somewhat sarcastic phrase. He says, no doubt there have to be differences among you to show which of you have God's approval. In other words, you, he was living with the hard reality that they had divisions, and the only good thing about it he, he could think of, well, at least we can tell who the real ones are and who, ones, who the fake ones are because of the divisions that are separating people. Not that he recommended that we have divisions in order to establish that, but at least that's one good thing that came out of it. So he said, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. Doesn't belong to him anymore. You've hijacked the Lord's Supper. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry, another gets drunk, and don't you have homes to eat and drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not in this matter. So when he uses that phrase, the Lord's Supper, he is very powerfully saying, you've taken this away from God. It started as a great idea, but when you hijacked it, it became your meal as more focused on you and your pleasure and your happiness while you wanted it. God got edged out somewhere. And when you first were starting out and you were taking the loaf and said, let's focus on Jesus, somehow you lost the focus on the bread being the unity of the believers. You lost the focus on the bread being the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. And you eventually just quit making any reference to it when you pass the bread. You quit making any reference to it when you pass the cup. And it's all been lost and it's become this Literally, virtually, another pagan love feast happening in the church. Now, what would happen was the well-to-do people were not necessarily bound to a long uh, work day by some employer somewhere. They didn't have eight-hour work days and five-day work weeks. You have to understand that. So the people who had to labor for a living would labor from sun up to sundown. Yet the, the wealthier people, the well-to-do people, were not bound by that. So whenever the love feast was scheduled, the wealthy people showed up early. And the food's getting cold because all of the other people, the poorer people, the needy people, they're still working. So they come dragging in late. And so eventually as this thing evolved, the the people who were there early just begin to say, well, let's just go ahead and eat, and then they can eat when they get here. Right now, at the very beginning, they've already ended one of the purposes of fellowship, and that is for everybody to get together and be as one. And he, that's what he said. When you, you all have your own suppers, you gather, and you're gathering by uh, a social status. When you get together, the well-to-do people are gathering at their own table. And the poor people are not even there yet. When they gather, they have to gather with themselves. So this church is dividing over this feast that was supposed to unite. It wasn't working for them. It was supposed to promote fellowship. It was actually drawing a terrible line of division between the haves and the have-nots. It was supposed to begin with the breaking of bread and end with the sharing of the cup. And that got lost somewhere. So they were abusing the bread and the cup. Not only did they ignore the latecomers, they turned the meal into a marathon of carnal indulgence. And before the latecomers could come, they ate all the food. So when the latecomers came, there was nothing to eat. They left them out. They didn't care. If you want to get something to eat, get here early. 
and they were abusing the bread. They were abusing the cup because it was just supposed to be that ceremonial cup to remind them of the sacrifice of Jesus, the blood shed. But it ended up being somebody was getting into the communion cup and getting drunk. And they didn't care about anybody else. And Paul saw this as one of the, the great problems of this fellowship. Is you, it's becoming all about you. It's becoming about all, all about your carnality and what makes you feel good and you're eating early and you're ignoring everybody else. And he said, you know, if, if, you, if you are going to do that, you'd have been better off just staying home. Why are you even coming here to do this? And by doing so, you are dishonoring the church, the body of Christ. We have to fulfill God's purpose and God's design for a church. He intends for his church to be united. If we can't be united, we're wasting God's time. He intends for the church to be caring for others. If we don't care about others, we're wasting God's time. We've missed the mark. He intends the church to focus on him. If we're not focusing on him, we're wasting our time. We're wasting God's time. So and then the church strays in any of these elements. It's dishonoring to God, and we're missing the whole mission and purpose of the church. So Paul says, okay, let's get back to basics. Let's go back to what this is supposed to be all about and see if we can get things straightened out. And he says, For I received from the Lord what I also passed on to you. This is the portion of Scripture that we oftentimes read when we partake of communion or I make reference to it. If I don't actually read it word for word, we refer to this, what Paul shared with the Corinthians. He said, let's, let's go back. Let's, let's go see how it was originally done and let's see if we can get this back on track again. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, after supper, he took the cup, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. For whenever you drink, eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Let us not forget the sacrifice. Like I said, this is sometimes called the Eucharist. And it's taken from the 24th verse when Paul says, and when he had given thanks, and the, word, the Greek word thanks is basically Eucharist or it's the Greek form of Eucharist, which we translate into English, and we call it Eucharist. That's where we get that from. It's the giving of thanks. So we understand that the, the, the taking of the Lord's Supper is a, a time of concentrating on the unity of the church. It's a time of concentrating on the sacrifice of Jesus. And it's a time of giving thanks. Those are all important elements in taking communion. I think a lot of times one of the things that lures us away from doing what we're supposed to do 
is we spend a lot of time thinking how unholy and how unworthy we are and if God's going to kill us for taking unworthily. And certainly, Paul said, a man ought to examine himself. A woman ought to examine herself. We ought to do some self-reflection. But I, I think if the enemy can do anything to rob us of the benefits and the blessings of the communion, that is to get us thinking so much on ourselves and so much on the past week and the past month that we don't even take time to recognize the sacrifice Jesus gave for us and give it proper balance, or we don't take time to even give thanks to God. Eucharist, giving thanks. And it, it's interesting that Eucharist also points back to the Old Testament. They had in the Old Testament a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And it was one that was initiated by the person themselves, not according to some religious calendar or season, but when they felt like God had given them a breakthrough, they made a sacrifice to God. How many of you practice that in your life? When God really did something special, you start thinking about, I need to give something to God. Have you ever done that? I always start thinking of that whenever God gives me a breakthrough. I, I really, I want to do something for God. I want to give a sacrifice to him. Because that's just kind of, it seems to be built into my religious heritage. When God blesses you, you want to sacrifice back to him. So whenever they would give a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, a, a sacrifice of praise to God, they would do it a little bit like they would do the Passover. They'd get them a lamb. They go to the temple and, and have the lamb appropriately sacrificed. They would take the meat home. They would invite friends and family over and they would say, we are all here today to give thanks and praise to God because of what he has done. And then they would give their testimony of what he has done for them. Let's throw a feast when God does something special in your life. Invite me. I like to come to feasts. And if I begin to put on weight, it'll be indication we're having a lot of breakthroughs in our congregation. I kind of like that idea. Look what God has done. Let's eat. And that Thanksgiving sacrifice was known in the Hebrew as Toda, the Toda sacrifice. But when they took that word toda and they translated Hebrew into Greek so the Greek speaking people in Jesus day could continue to study the Old Testament they translated toda which was the Hebrew Thanksgiving into Eucharist so from the Old Testament we had the Eucharist sacrifice and it's interesting that the connection to the Last Supper is undeniable not only does Paul use that word that when he gave thanks when he gave Eucharist and not only does it point back to the Old Testament of giving thanks and praise through sacrifice, but in that last supper, we undeniably have all those elements of the Toda sacrifice present. We have the sacrificial lamb, we have the bread, we have the wine, and Jesus, understand, was giving thanks. What did he have to give thanks for? And you might have even thought when I said, well, let's Let's celebrate. Let's give thanks for what God has done for us. Now, if you're in your nasty mood this morning, you may have retorted and said, what do I have to give thanks for? What's God ever done for me? 
that old skeptical attitude. I don't see why I have to make a sacrifice. He's never done anything good for me. Well, let me tell you a story. Jesus was hours away from being crucified. He was going to be killed, not for anything he had done. He would be crucified as a criminal, yet he committed no crime. His life would be violently attacked. His body would be broken. His blood would be shed. And as you read the crucifixion story, you know how unthinkable, how inhumane the treatment was. And hours before, he is led to the slaughter. You know what kind of condition I would be in at that point? I don't think I'd keep it to myself. I think I'd be announcing to everybody, I'm just about to be destroyed. They're coming after me, and it's not going to be pretty. They're going to beat me savagely. I will be unrecognizable by the beatings. Then they're going to nail me to the cross. I'm going to suffer like you have never seen suffering before. And this is only minutes, hours away from me. See, I'm wanting somebody to feel sorry for me. Maybe even in the back of my mind, I'm wanting somebody to stand up and say, don't worry about it, pastor, I'll take your place. But Jesus is describing what's going to happen to him hours away from the crucifixion, and he says, this is my body, which is about to be broken. And he gave thanks. He wasn't giving thanks just for a loaf of bread. He can get a loaf of bread anytime. He was giving thanks for the will of God in his life. When you say, well, what can I be thankful for? You know, you may feel like you've been drugged through the ringer, but you give thanks for the will of God in your life. He knows what you need. And God leads his dear children along. It's not always easy, the path he leads us. But to give thanks. If Jesus can give thanks with that, in his immediate future, we can give thanks to him for what God is doing for us. And Paul picks up in the 27th verse, after giving instructions on the proper observation of the Lord's Supper, and he explains to them why this is serious business. This is the one you want to pay particular attention to. So then, whoever eats this bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the body and the blood of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink from the cup. For those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why. There are many among you who are weak and sick, and a number of you have fallen asleep. They were failing to recognize the body of Jesus while they were eating the bread and drinking the cup. That's what I said a while ago when I said somehow that got lost. This love feast, we're going to get together, we're going to care for the poor, we're going to honor Jesus, and it all got lost somehow. 
And he said, you are failing in your feasts to bring honor to Jesus. You eat the bread, but you don't think about him. You drink the cup, but you don't think about him. He has lost his presence in your feast. First of all, he said they were not recognizing the body. And the most obvious and foremost interpretation of that is they were not recognizing the body being represented the body of Jesus by the bread being broken. But the second layer of that is they were not recognizing the significance of the body of believers by their treatment of each other. Two ways in which they were sinning, dishonoring the body of Jesus and disregarding the sacrifice he made and dishonoring one another because they couldn't wait for each other to gather and eat together, because they couldn't save a little food for the hungry when the others came, because they were coming so factionalized and segmented in their church. They were no longer a church. They were a gathering of individual groups. And God wasn't glorified. How could anybody recognize the body of Jesus symbolized by the broken loaf? How could anybody recognize the cup as symbolic of his shed blood and still continued to eat like gluttons and drink like drunkards. It's obvious God had been dismissed because you can't focus on Jesus is here while you're getting drunk. You can't focus on Jesus is here and the unity of the, of the believers if you are treating the believers like they don't even belong there, like they're intruders in your house, like what are these poor people doing here? Isn't it curious how we compartmentalize so easily? Isn't it interesting how conveniently we put Jesus Christ aside when we embark on our godly behavior? We like to think he's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. We like to talk about he'll never leave us nor forsake us. But then when our mouth runs like a sewer and our lusty appetites take control and we evidently fail to recognize the presence of Christ because if we recognize the presence of Christ, we wouldn't act like that. We talk about him, he's with me all the way. But you kind of forget about him being with you when you want to cuss like a sailor. Is he really with you when you were doing that? really with you when you were entertaining those filthy thoughts Jesus is here with me well if he is you won't act like that and then Paul gives this shocking revelation he says essentially have you Corinthians ever wondered why there's so many weak and sick people among you have you wondered why it looks like a plague's moving through your church have you ever wondered why in your church people are dropping like flies in your congregation? He said, you know why that's happening? You brought this curse upon yourself because you took over the Lord's Supper and made it your own supper for your own selfish pleasure. And God will not tolerate that kind of disrespect. Your friends, your family are mysteriously sick. They're dying. You can't get healing for them. And have you finally figured it out? You've offended God. Now, I'm not going to try and translate that into today. I'm not going to tell you that if we've got a congregation here that somebody is partaking unworthily, that if you drink that cup, you're going to die. 
This was something that definitely, without question, happened in that Corinthian congregation. They were partaking unworthily, and they brought this curse upon themselves, and they were getting sick. They were dying. Nobody could figure out what was wrong with them. And Paul said, I'll tell you what's wrong with it. God is disgusted with you dishonoring him. Now, if that were true for every other church in every other age, that every time we had somebody partaking unworthily, we would have a, an inordinate amount of sudden deaths in the modern-day church, and we don't have it. So that's not something we would describe as being normative. In other words, don't expect that to happen, but I can you tell you what, I, I tell you what you can expect. Is God's not happy when he's dishonored. That's the bottom line. We had this grave moment when Christ shared the loaf and that cup with his disciples. The air was thick with this sense of morbid foreboding. And within hours, the Lamb of God was going to be sacrificed on a cruel cross. And the only thing Christ asked from them was every time you gather and eat the bread and every time you gather and drink the cup, would you remember the price that I paid so you could gather together? Think about the price I paid for your redemption. Would you just think about that? Would you keep that in your mind? Would you think about the holy, blameless Lamb of God that was led like a sheep to the slaughter? But they didn't think about it. They broke the loaf. They drank the cup. They partied. They laughed. They got drunk. And they never thought of the broken body and the shed blood. And that's why they were suffering and dying. Our act of communion, the Lord's Supper, the Eucharist, should bring us to a holy reverence of God, honoring Him, giving thanks to Him, and reminding us of the unity of the body. Now, it doesn't matter as much how we do it, how often we do it. Those things are not defined in the Bible. That's what we have come up with. I had a young lady come into the church a few years ago. She was looking for a place to worship, she and her family. She, she asked me, said, how often do you have communion? I said, once a month. She said, I believe it ought to be every Sunday. I'm looking for a church that has communion every Sunday. She said, the Bible tells us we ought to have it every Sunday. I said, well, I'm, I'm sorry, but the Bible doesn't tell us it has to be every Sunday. It says as often as as often as you do this. Well, she wanted to be argumentative. I didn't want to be argumentative. The Bible doesn't tell us it has to be every Sunday. We do it once a month, and I'll tell you why. Because once a year is too seldom to really show honor to God by our assessment. I'm not criticizing another church. By our assessment, we don't feel that's often enough to really bring honor to God. Every week becomes so commonplace it loses its significance by our assessment. Once a month fits us real well. If other churches don't have that formula, that's fine for them. But that's 
why we do this once a month. And the Bible doesn't tell us how often we have to do it. The Bible doesn't tell us it has to be a solid loaf, singular loaf of bread, although we understand why they did that in that culture. The Bible doesn't tell us it has to be a communion cup. We cannot become contentious over things like this. The Bible doesn't spell that out. The Bible doesn't tell us it has to be the, the uh, red grape juice or the white grape juice. The Bible doesn't say it has to be wine or it shouldn't be wine. The Bible doesn't say any of those things. Yet people become very contentious about this as though they think that if we get it, the recipe just right, we're going to be more holy than everybody else. But the important thing is that God stays at the center of our worship. When God is taken out of our communion service, our worship service, our church service, anything we do for him, when God is taken out, it's over. Would you bow your heads?